You're listening to New Voices, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. In this episode, I talk to Alison Stone, professor of philosophy at Lancaster University, about 19th century British women philosophers. We discuss a range of philosophical topics that these women worked on, including artificial intelligence, animal rights, and feminist theories. We also talk about the correspondence that these philosophers had with one another, the political impact of their writings, and the way that perceived philosophical importance and impact differs across time and place. Hi, I'm Alison Stone. I'm a professor of philosophy at Lancaster University. I'm here to talk about 19th century women philosophers, particularly in Britain. So Alison, I'll start by asking you, how did you get interested in and start working on these British women philosophers of the 19th century? Yeah, I've been trying to remember. How, uh, <laughs> it's, it's been a long time in the making, really. Yeah. I teach a course on 19th century philosophy, and I'd become more and more uncomfortable with the fact that it covered Hegel, Feuerbach, Marx, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, so it was just a series of great men. So there was that. Um, I'd been interested for a long time in German idealism, and I was becoming more and more aware the women of German idealism and romanticism haven't had the level of attention that they should have done. So people who you've talked about on this podcast with Dahlia Nassau-Bissou or Carolina von Gunderelder, for example, and Bettina von Arnim. So um, there were those, those sort of things were pushing me. And then... Mike Beanie was wanting to have a special issue of the British Journal for the History of Philosophy about 19th century women philosophers. And I found myself offering to co-edit it. Mm-hmm. And then I had to do lots of reading around the topic in order to get a sense of um, what some of the things were that the issue needed to cover. And what ba- and then basically once I began doing some reading, it just absolutely took off because I realised there was this mass of material out there, especially because everything, well, not everything, but most things have now been digitised, like all the 19th century journals, for instance. So many books are online. So there's just this huge wealth of material there. But nobody... Although it's there in principle, nobody really knows about it. <laughs> nobody makes any use of it. Yeah. So, so then that was how it began. And then I needed to find a way of narrowing it down. So that was when I decided to focus myself on looking at women in 19th century Britain. And we know a couple of them already so Mary Shepherd has a level of recognition as a philosopher now and it's increasingly recognized that there was the philosophical side of George Eliot's 
work, but there were other lots and lots of other figures. And um, I, I quickly, I became um, fascinated with one woman in particular, Frances Power Cobb, because she was massive. She was just a massive figure at the time. Um, and she had uh, a moral theory and an account of moral knowledge and action. She made a case for animal rights. Well, in fact, the whole series of cases for animal rights. And she had her own version of feminism. And basically, she had a view on pretty much every philosophical topic. <laughs> um, it's come to seem to me you could not have a more glaring case of somebody who would have been in the canon yeah. if they had not been a woman. You, that's, so that's just sort of one example. I mean, Harriet Martineau was another really huge person in the landscape at the time as well. So, I mean, as with so many historical women philosophers, there's then this whole question about, well, how come they didn't make it into the canon, yeah. given that they were really massive at the time, um, which is another another whole question in itself. Yeah. Can I uh, ask you to maybe take a, a stance or give some answer on that, that question? Right, yes. Why well, have well, I mean, there's going to be somewhat different factors, of course, in each case. But I think that probably for people in this place and period, for women in 19th century Britain, I've come to think that the key reason why they didn't get into the canon is that in the 19th century in Britain, philosophy wasn't yet professionalised. Mm. So... It was only late in the century that you had the first specialist philosophy journals being being set up, mined, and the proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. Mm. They were the, the first ones, and they were towards the end of the century. And that it was in the same point, sort of from the 1870s onwards in Britain, that all the disciplines began to professionalise themselves and become specialist. And so I think it it was really to do with that, because, I mean, of course, in the 19th century, for most of the period, women couldn't go to university yeah. and even once universities began to open themselves a bit to women their opportunities were still much more limited but that didn't necessarily prevent them from being part of philosophical discussion because it largely went on it wasn't sort of conducted in a specialist way anyway it went on sort of in the general public culture yeah so so not being able to get into universities earlier on wasn't as crucial. But then once philosophy began to become professionalised, you had to have an academic post and be part of the right institutions. Yeah. And because of the history of women's not having been able to go to university, there were very few of them at first who were professional philosophers in Britain and so all of the the kind of fledgling professionals as it were were men or they were almost all men there's a few 
exceptions like EEC Jones, but by and large, they were men. Yeah. And they they kind of established a canon that that reflected that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's so lots of the the previous generation of people who had been doing philosophy in this more generalist, non-professional environment, lots of those people all got lost from from the canon. So it didn't only affect women. So, for instance, George Henry Lewis, who was George Eliot's partner, also didn't make it into the canon, even though he was seen amongst British people in the 19th century as one of the key philosophers at the time. But he also didn't make it in because of this professionalism issue. I mean, of course, John Stuart Mill wasn't a professional philosopher either, though, but he did make it in. You know, a few people could make it into the canon, but yeah. yeah. So I think I've come to think that it was to do with that primarily. Yeah. And how was the reception of these women philosophers maybe using uh, Francis Power Cobb as an example, but any, I mean, any of the the figures you work on or you've named, how was their reception at the time? Well, so, and the reason why I sigh, and I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> this, this is a tricky question, because yeah. the reception in many ways um, was pretty positive. I mean, once Cobb began writing, so her first her first book was published anonymously, okay. and it had a positive reception. And then she went on to start to publish lots of journal articles, and they were signed. Um, and they they were a huge hit and so she she became you know she she kind of became really celebrated uh, was able to make a living by by writing and publishing and basically she was she was publishing philosophy and she was kind of at the center of things intellectually this was in the 60s the 1860s 1870s 1880s so in that sense, the reception was positive. I mean, it was perhaps, it was probably more like that for for Cobb and Harriet Martineau than, than almost anyone else, which, which can be measured in the sense that Cobb and Martineau generally published things under their own names, their, their own sort of full female names. Yeah. Whereas lots of people, I mean, George Eliot being a case in point, yeah. Um, yeah, others would would use pseudonyms or, or initials. And despite that, even in the case of, of those who did get a good reception at the time, like Cobb and Martineau, yeah. it was still, to us, it would still seem that much of the positive reception was tinged with people being very patronising, mm-hmm. I think we would still find it that way in hindsight. I should also clarify that it really changed for Cobb. Things completely changed because she became the leader of the movement in Britain uh, against vivisection. And first she wanted to restrict it. And some legislation got got passed in order to regulate it, which 
Cobb then thought was was so weak as to be useless. So then she decided that vivisection had to be prohibited altogether. Most of the scientists and medical practitioners of the day did not agree. Mm. Uh, so, so she kind of went from having been quite at the heart of the establishment to falling out with most of the establishment and being quite regularly attacked in in the press. So her reputation really fell. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things in her case as well that contributed, I suspect, to why she didn't make it into the canon because she became so associated in the public mind with opposition to vivisection and seen as this sort of sentimental, historical woman who couldn't accept that it was it was sensible and rational and beneficial to everyone to experiment on animals. So it sounds like Cobb yeah. was a, a political figure mm. as much as a philosopher. You mentioned that she wrote on animal rights. Do you think that a lot of her philosophy, or do you find often her philosophy a political tinge? Is she writing philosophy in order to, to inform her political positions? Mm. How is the connection between those two? She definitely did, especially with the writing about animal rights and duties to animals, animal welfare, definitely. So she wanted it to provide the uh, a kind of solid basis for passing legislation to to improve the welfare of animals mm-hmm. so there was that political aspect and then in turn when she felt that the legislation that was passed was too weak that and so she therefore decided vivisection had to be abolished and that led her to change her theory mm-hmm. so there was this interaction and likewise with her views on feminism as well that interacted with political campaigning so so definitely um in some ways she was yeah she was quite a a political thinker although there's other parts of her thought that are that are much further away from politics sort of account say of philosophy of religion or philosophy of mind are obviously at a, at a further remove. Mm. But it is a feature of, of lots of women's philosophising in, in this place and period that yeah. it often has a political aspect and a, a, a value-related aspect. I mean, there are, again, there are exceptions. I mean, if we consider Ada Lovelace, for instance, to being a philosopher insofar as she had had things to say about artificial intelligence um you know that's less obviously less politically related although i think even there she thought of it as having practical applications in terms of what use we could make computers as we now call them yeah so there, there are exceptions a lot of it was quite value related because it gave it gave women a way in because this was a period when you had the idea that women are morally superior to men 
kind of the prevailing ideology was women are not as intellectually able, but they are morally superior. And so that sort of provided something that women could use hmm. to kind of legitimate themselves in writing and speaking publicly as moral authorities. I would love to hear some more about Power Cobb's views on, on morality or her philosophical views uh, and the name of some of the texts she wrote. Yeah, okay. So her moral theory. So she 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 was quite influenced by Kant, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, she takes him in a very different way to what most 20th century people have taken Kant. So she she says that... Morality is basically a matter of obligations and to have obligations you have to have a law and to have a moral law you have to have a moral legislator. Mm. And then she considers whether that could be us, that we legislate moral requirements to ourselves, but she thinks that 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 doesn't provide for moral requirements to be absolute and uh-huh. she thinks they are absolute so she therefore thinks the legislator has to be god so she completely connects religion and morality together mm-hmm. and she therefore thought you can't have an atheist morality that morality needs religion I think this is one of the things that has perhaps made it quite hard for people more recently to access 19th century British philosophy, Mm. like not just Cobb, but quite generally. I mean, it was, the culture was really devout. Yeah. And religion is just, it's quite, it's just pervasive, even with those who, who came to, reject religion and become secularists and agnostics so even where even those people they were still really taken up and preoccupied with religious questions so i think this is possibly part of why we've not there's been such neglect really i think by historians of 19th century british philosophy because it is really so heavily religious a lot of the time yeah anyway that that was a bit of an aside yeah so so Cobb's basic account is sort of duty based and she then treats virtue as being um, a consequence of obeying the law for its own sake so she argues that duty has to come before virtue it's sort of logically prior to virtue and then she thinks that both of these are also prior to happiness. And so she argues against a whole bunch of sort of happiness-based theories yeah. and goes on to have an account of what our various duties are and sort of order them in relation to one another. Do you work on Cobb's moral theory? Have you been writing on, on this topic? Yeah, Lydia Moland and I are co-editing a handbook of American and British women philosophers in the 19th century. We're still we're still in the middle of it. 
it won't be out probably until 2023, I would guess. But yes, but it's it's in the pipeline. I've been writing about Cobb's philosophy as a whole. So mm-hmm. I've edited a collection of her writings, which it's it should be out next year in the Oxford New Histories of Philosophy series. So it's it's kind of the essential Cobb. As one of the other things actually that I should mention about her is that she had this uh, she had this sustained engagement with with Darwin. This was also something that she was really well known for. So she thought so Darwin tried to have an evolutionary ethics where we don't need to bring in religion to provide a basis for ethics, that instead we can ascertain that we've evolved so as to be social and cooperative and to want to fit in with the norms of the social group so so that you can get ethics out of evolution. Cobb, on the other hand, thought that it follows from evolution that we've got instincts to be competitive and aggressive and cruel. So, but again, this led her to say that we can't have an, an evolutionary ethics at all, that we need to have a religiously based ethics. And instead, if we try to base ethics on evolution, we'll end up, she thought, essentially legitimating people in acting on all of their worst, cruelest, most aggressive impulses. And then for her, she thought vivisection, that which because it was becoming established at the time, it hadn't really been used very much in the British 19th century. But by the end of the century, it was standard practice. And she this was yeah. kind of the practical working out of what happens if you try to base ethics on evolution. So it might seem a kind of curious set of connections that she makes amongst these yeah. topics. But, yeah. It's interesting that she ties base instincts so clearly with, with the abuse of animals uh, to think that cruelty against animals is such a good indicator that something's gone wrong. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and for her also, violence of men towards women. So, so one, I mean, she's not remembered a lot, but when she is remembered, one of the things that people will often point out about Cobb is that she made this connection between the violence of scientists towards animals in the laboratory and the violence of husbands towards their wives so she thought that was sort of another manifestation of of these um the unpleasant instincts that we've inherited from evolution and um and one of her positive achievements was to influence the passage of the first piece of legislation that was to protect women from domestic violence so it's enabled women of husbands who've been convicted of violence it enabled their wives to get a legal separation and retain custody of their children and receive maintenance from the husbands for their children 
So, so that was sort of one of her her big victories. And, just, and you mentioned too, right, that she's she's writing this feminist philosophy. I imagine that this was a big component of that of her writings on feminist philosophy. Yeah, again, she she wrote about lots of of different feminist issues. So she wrote in favour of women being able to go to university and there was a controversy at the time about whether women needed special educational curricula of their own, um, whether they should be following the same curricula as men. And she was one of the strong advocates of the latter. But um, she was also involved suffrage and for women to be able to retain ownership of their own property and and earnings and assets upon marriage and so a lot of a lot of strands really Um, yeah and she was uh, she was kind of a difference feminist even though I've been saying she wanted women to have all these sort of the same rights as men, yeah. she also was, was a believer in difference. So she thought that, for instance, once women were able to go to university and study the same things as men, that they would necessarily still approach these subjects in a different way as women, that they would yeah. kind of have their own perspectives. And she thought if women were able to vote, they would do so from a, their particular perspectives as women. Or if they made art, they would do so in a distinctively, a distinctive woman's kind of way. So it was in a way that, that she thought it's fine to treat women completely equally as men because you yeah. needn't worry that this will make women into men because necessarily yeah. they will still be feminine and be different from men. You said you're you're working on a an anthology of her writing. Yes, yes. Uh, which will be a nice source yes. for people looking to to read more about Cobb. But I was wondering what advice you had for carrying out this kind of work from start to finish. So you're working on this anthology. Mm-hmm. What about people who want to get started yeah. on working on these 19th century figures? Yeah. Now? So I, I had a bit of a think about this. So I think one of the first impediments, sort of remembering when I was sort of starting to read around this area, one of the big impediments is that we just don't know the names of lots of people. Yeah. And of course, the internet is fantastic, but you need to know what names to type into it in the first <laughs> So yeah. the only way to, to pick up some names really is to read sort of general books about 19th century culture and, and history and society. But then you can easily be misled because you'll find that women are described as writers or reformers or journalists. Again and again, those are the three words that you you find used. And this has often misled me. So I'd be reading about the period and then I'd see someone called a writer. So I'd sort of bracket them off in my mind as, okay, they wrote fiction. 
And later I discovered that actually what they wrote was philosophy. But it just seems that people find it so hard in their minds to categorise women still as philosophers that they find it easier to kind of classify them as just a writer. So that's sort of something to, to look out for. And then, um, so where, where to look in terms of the philosophy that women published at the time? So basically, British, 19th century Britain, it had this really flourishing journal culture. And there were certain journals that were really kind of the central ones for sort of shaping the debate. So the Westminster Review, uh, Macmillan's magazine and Fraser's magazine, and then later in the century, the Contemporary Review in the 19th century. And a lot of what is in them was philosophy. So Fraser's magazine, for instance, was where Mill first published utilitarianism in, in serial form. So, so the thing to do is, is really to start by looking at them. And you can use sources like there's this great website, the Victorian Web, which has details of loads of the periodicals at the time. One thing to bear in mind, though, with that is that most journal articles in the 19th century in Britain were anonymous. They were published anonymously. And this is part of what enabled women to contribute. But um, it can also make it harder to sort of track down which things were by women. But luckily mm-hmm. you've got people like the Wellesley Index and the Curran Index, teams of people who basically de-anonymised lots of the journal content. And then one other thing I wanted to mention is that it's worth, and this would of course be true for many periods, it's worth looking at letters and autobiographies because it wasn't standard practice in published work to spell out all of your references um, and all of the people you were aware of or engaging with. And then when women at the time do include name references, it's usually to men because the men had more authority. But what you can find, um, I found this really interesting, is that when you look at women's letters, you will see them engaging with one another and telling one another which other women they're reacting to even though they then you'll find that they don't mention those women in the published work so the letters are really useful for kind of telling where women are responding to one another okay so so from start to finish um i would say using general histories of the 19th century to pick out some names and then seeing what they published in periodicals and also using digital archives of for what books they may have published as well. And then looking at letters and autobiographies to see what other women they were engaging with so that you can kind of 
connect the women with one another, sort of not just always having to kind of relate a particular woman to to male interlocutors. Yeah, I think that's from start yeah. to finish. That's great. We've we focused a lot on Cobb, who sounds, like I said, sounds wonderful. But I mean, now that you've mentioned these kind of networks of women philosophers, I'm very curious to hear some more names uh, and then maybe a little bit about who was talking to yeah. each other, because I do, I find that really interesting. Uh, as you said, I mean, often, right, women of the early modern and 19th century periods get connected up to the men they were communicating with, you know, to kind of give them this authority. But I love the idea of a collaboration and, and communication between the women. Yeah, themselves. yeah. So, um, I mean, I find it really fascinating to reconstruct this as well. So I was mentioning earlier Harriet Martineau. So she was of the generation before Cobbs. Um, and in the first half of the 19th century, she was the best known woman intellectual in the country. So it was sort of her earlier in the century and then probably Cobb later in the century. And with Martineau, I mean, for one thing, there's, there's a relationship that Cobb had with Martineau's ideas because Martineau, she underwent this huge philosophical transition kind of in public. So she started off very devout. She was part of this particular form of Christianity, this particular sort of sect, I suppose you could call it, Unitarianism. And basically, step by step, she kind of relinquished it entirely and went over to being somewhere between an agnostic and an atheist. Um, so obviously Cobb objected to this. And yeah. uh, Cobb did so in in public as well. Because Martineau was so huge, you can kind of trace relations that all of these various other women had with her. Um, so, for example, this is just one example earlier I was mentioning about Ada Lovelace. So Lovelace, she wrote this set of notes about Babbage's analytical engine. And it's those notes that I was alluding to earlier where Lovelace says things about artificial intelligence. But Lovelace had various other philosophical ideas. And one was that she spoke about wanting to carry out a calculus of the mind and the nervous system. And in fact, she wanted to do this together with Harriet Martineau. So, gosh, this is opening up this, this whole other thing here. But in the 1840s, this was when Lovelace was, was writing to Martineau about this. In the 1840s, there was this craze in Britain for mesmerism, i.e. what we now call hypnotism. And okay. Martineau had been very ill and she appeared to have been cured of it by mesmerism. Everyone was talking about this, um, including Lovelace. And so Lovelace wanted them to kind of explore together, you know, how 
the mind and the brain went together in such a way that it was possible for people to be cured of physical illnesses through mesmerism acting on their minds. But unfortunately, she wrote to Martineau about it, but Martineau was too busy to reply. So, (laughs) yeah, it didn't happen. I mean, it's one of a number of things. With Lovelace, she had all these ideas and she didn't really manage to bring very many of them to fruition. But... I mean, Martineau herself did, she did go on to to write things. She wrote things about mesmerism. She also wrote things about the mind. And she basically adopted a materialist view of the mind. And um, this was, I mean, this was also the subject of a huge controversy. So Martineau corresponded with somebody who had been involved in this cure by mesmerism, um, a man called Henry George Atkinson. They had this long correspondence about mesmerism and the theory of the mind that supported it, which for them, both of them, was a materialist account of the mind. And then Martineau decided to publish a large part of these letters. This was in 1851. Goodness me. I mean, the con- the controversy. I mean, it was absolutely <laughs> ferocious. Yeah, I mean, to adopt the materialist account of the mind was because it was so threatening to religion. Yeah. Basically, it didn't leave any room for the soul. And yeah. so, yeah, that that was why it was it was so controversial at the time. So. We've mentioned the themes and topics and questions that these women are dealing with. Um, You've also mentioned a lot of it was happening in letters, in correspondence, maybe in public forums. But what other mediums were these women writing in? And, and, you know, what, if I wanted to go pick up a text, which one should I start with? Well, so some used letters. So as we've been talking about that, and then towards the very end of the century, there's Victoria Welby who, I mean, she really used letters as her her central medium, really, for doing philosophy. It's quite interesting. She had this vast correspondence, and she kind of used letters to, to try out and develop her ideas. So her particular focus was, about, was on meaning and language. So she was a real user of, of letters. There were also those who wrote pretty straightforward books and articles of philosophy. So much of Cobb's output is like that. Um, Mary Shepherd is someone who's like that. Again, late in the century, Vernon Lee is someone else. Much of her work is just quite straightforwardly philosophy. She mainly wrote about aesthetics. Um, But there were certainly a whole variety of forms. So with Harriet Martineau, I mean, her range was, um, it was immense. I mean, she wrote a novel. She wrote a kind of fictionalised biography of 
Toussaint Louverture, the Haitian revolutionary leader. She wrote these uh, illustrations of political economy, so these stories that were illustrating things like the law of supply and demand. And then there's the letters that I was mentioning, the, the letters on the laws of man's nature and development. And then there are other things of hers that are more straightforwardly philosophical as well. Travel writing was another form that, that Martineau used. She did a tour of the Middle East and she kind of made it the occasion to write a book that was about the development of the sequence of religions and how it was leading up to secularism. And I guess finally I should mention, of course, women who were using fiction in a way to do philosophy. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Mary Shelley can, can plausibly be seen in that way. There's a the sort of philosophical background to George Eliot's novels yeah. as well. So, yeah, so all of these different forms. And I guess I should also mention one of the forms at the time was the was the publishing of kind of freestanding sort of pamphlets, kind of essays in the form of, of independent pamphlets. So there's lots of these um, by Annie Besant, who I've not mentioned, but I find her a really fascinating figure as well. And lots of the pamphlets that she brought out are, are basically on philosophical topics including a couple of them that are her critiques of Cobb. And then you asked uh, if you were to read, if you were to pick up and read one thing. Well, I think I'm going to have to recommend something of Cobb's, given everything been saying about him. So, yeah. in, But most of her books consist of collections of her journal articles put together. Uh, mm -hmm. And probably to pick... I mean, I'm torn between two, but I think I'm going to go for the book that's called Darwinism in Morals, which okay. is a collection of essays. So it's got her critique of Darwin. It's also got two of her essays about philosophy of mind. So it's just got, it's kind of got a whole range of things, but that's as yeah. much sort of the quintessential cob as anything in a way. Well, I'll have to go uh, go pick it up after this. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and speaking of, of, of after this, I think we're, we're kind of approaching the end of our time. So if you don't mind me, me ending with, with one more big question for you, um, which is, is what do you think is lost um, when we don't teach or research these figures or a more positive spin? What do you think is gained by integrating yeah. these figures, all the figures we've mentioned, into philosophy courses and research. I guess one thing that we lose if we don't include them is that we end up portraying philosophy in a way that makes it quite difficult for women, I think, and for members of other underrepresented groups as well. If we, we just portray philosophy as being all about white European men, then it, it kind of suggests that those are the only people who have a home there. So mm -hmm. there's that problem. Um, I think as well, we get such a distorted picture 
of previous periods if we narrow it down to just a few big names. And I guess we, we lose the chance to sort of consider that what seems really important to us now wasn't always yeah. what was seen as really important at the time. So just to give one example, recently when I was on a sort of social media kind of conversation that was about Nietzsche um, and Nietzsche on the death of God, I decided to bring in Cobb because she also talked about the death of God. Then someone rather incredulously said to me, are you really saying this obscure woman is as important as Nietzsche? But then I was thinking, if, you know, had we been having that conversation in Britain in, in 1880, and, you know, I'd, someone had been talking about Cobb, and I kind of said, there's this, there's this little known Mormon guy. They would have said, oh, come on. Yeah. Um, so, and I think it's, it's kind of good to sort of try looking at things sort of from the other end of the telescope. Um, as it were. But I guess one of the other things that we find from it is that the story of sort of philosophy and who's included in it and who isn't, it's not really been a matter of linear progress over time because we had people in the 19th century who were really well known as, as women philosophers but who in the 20th century have been forgotten. I mean, in, yeah. yeah, in some ways it's it's come to seem to me that it's really been the 20th century that has been at least as bad in terms of the narrowing down of philosophy. Uh, it's been at least as bad as the 19th century, really. I mean, at least in the 19th century despite the sort of pervasiveness of kind of sexist assumptions and the fact that women couldn't go to university and so on, um, not, not to sort of minimise how, how bad those things were. And yet there were other ways in which it seems people were kind of more able to recognise women as being part of the philosophical conversation than, than has been possible in the 20th century. I mean, I don't know, having said this, I sometimes think maybe I've just got so immersed in the period that I've come to kind of view it as, as sort of better than it really was. So, I don't know, that's a, a kind of cautionary note. Of, uh, <laughs> so, but, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it seems so clear that as soon as you start immersing yourself in a period, right, like it just becomes so evident that there were a whole slur of people who not only you know we have left out but we're not minor figures you know we're not like just kind of ancillary footnotes on on various positions but we're actually you know, Cobb was writing legislation or you know passing yeah. or putting I don't actually I'm not a I'm not a politician what do, what do you do to do legislation she was doing whatever you do whatever part you're involved in in legislation yeah. um right like this yeah, like really yeah I mean, of course, it was complicated because, you know, you, to get legislation passed, I mean, that had to happen in Parliament. So, so kind of with the legislation about vivisection and, and domestic violence, you know, Cobb had kind of her allies in Parliament who would, would sort of yeah. put forward these things for her, as it were. 
but yeah. Harriet Martineau as well, you know, she was sort of consulted about things by the government of the time. And yeah, you know, they they were really quite at the heart of things. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned, right, like there's a there's a real shift in perspective on, you know, how, how for instance, we view the difference between someone like Cobb and someone like Nietzsche today versus how they would have in the 19th century, but or in the 19th century Britain, at least. Yeah. But I mean, the, the topics that you've mentioned that, that these women were writing on are really of live interest today, right? And I think especially the way, that, and this is something that is, is a nice, I think, theme throughout a lot of the episodes I've done, especially the way in which they're, they're really grounded in, in lived experience um, and political topics and, you know, the experience not only of you know, women, for instance, and the way they have a perspective on the world and experience domestic violence, but also how that can then be mapped onto issues of animal cruelty, how we treat animal creatures around us. Like these are these are questions that are of the utmost interest, I think, yes, to people today. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean in some ways I think that it's because we're going through a moment within philosophy where suddenly it seems people are much more open to talking about social and political matters, seeing it as kind yeah. of important to philosophy that maybe it helps us to be able to recognize these women as precursors whereas you know if if philosophy is 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 ordinary language philosophy it's kind of hard <laughs> to see as precursors so i like i said i think that was my last question for you thank you so much for this interview it was it was really really fantastic it's always so great to learn about these figures who i haven't encountered uh, or you know have only heard of it by name and i really really appreciate it yeah i mean say. i feel like we've we've only just kind of ranged over so many things and just sort of scratched the surface of them but yeah. but there we go yeah yeah no this is hopefully scratch the surface and then for listeners who want to hear more they can go and do this research that you you talked about and and yeah write more and, and read more about these really really interesting figures and topics so thank you so much thank you thank you for listening to new voices production of the podcast is funded by the social science and humanities research council of canada as part of the extending new narratives in the history of philosophy project the music you hear is 17th century female composer elizabeth claude jaquette de la guerre's sonata number two in d major performed on the violin by pizzeria armenici For more information about the project, and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. New Voices is a continuation of the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. You can also find past episodes under that name in all the same places. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.